Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Jack Drescher. Welcome to Arash's World. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. That's wonderful. So um, before I go into details about you and we'll talk about your work and your amazing contributions throughout many, many years, um, I'd like you to briefly introduce yourself in any way you see fit. Wow. Okay. So uh, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a psychoanalyst. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker and I live in New York and practice in New York. Um, I'm a uh, clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. I'm also on the faculty of the Columbia Center for Psychoanal Psychoanalytic Training and Research. Uh, I trained at the William Allenson White Institute, uh, my psychoanalytic training, and I'm a training and supervising analyst at the uh, White Institute. And I'm also on the uh, faculty of the New York University postdoctoral program uh, in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. And I do a lot of committee work. I've done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of uh, letter writing. I've had over 30 letters published in the New York Times. Um, although I do have a good friend who has more letters than I do, but fortunately we're not competitive with each other. Um, I've been involved in issues around gender and sexuality for most of my um, uh, scholarly career. You know, my professional life is really treating people in my psychiatric practice you know, have depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric disorders. Um, I was involved in the revision of the DSM-5, uh, and I also was involved in the revision of the International Classification of Diseases, at the ICD-11, which was approved in 2019, and in 2022 is now being used in many countries around the world, not in the United States yet. Um, and I was the section editor of the chapter on gender dysphoria, in, in the DSM-5 text revision, which was uh, published last year. So that's a little bit about my work. Wonderful. That's amazing. And you're also a Sigourney Award recipient uh, this year. So uh, congrats. Uh, well deserved. Right. And uh, the Sigourney Award is for our contributions to uh, psychoanalysis and beyond, and which uh, definitely it's quite clear that uh, you have made quite a tremendous impact uh, through through your work. And so congrats to that. And you actually, last year, I got to interview all the recipients. You're the only one who signed up who's brave enough to be on a rashes world. So congrats to that too, of, uh, oh. taking that challenge. Um, but uh, I wanna talk about here about psychoanalytic anxiety here and especially related to uh, gender identity and uh, experiences here of uh, uh, um, homosexuality as well and, and all that. And um, I find it quite interesting because uh, um, when uh, people who, who uh, experience that difference with, with others, they feel like uh, society does not uh, accept them and they have to, and parents don't accept them in many, in many sad cases. Uh, so um, they have to hide. And I think as from, from a point of view of psychoanalysis, something I'm fascinated with, what effects does that have on the uh, the psyche of uh, of someone who's experiencing that kind of distress? And maybe we can talk a bit about that. Sure. Uh, before I, do, I just wanted to say I neglected to mention in my introduction. Yes, I am one of the recipients of this of last year's Sigourney Award, and I'm very grateful to the Mary Sigourney Trust for you know giving this and recognizing my work. It's a very, it's an honor to have been nominated. Just, you know, <clears throat> I have a voice in my head that says you shouldn't talk about your honors. It's sort of a, it's not my first <laughs> reflex. So sorry about that. 
but the other thing is, uh, well, you know, having to hide your sexual identity, having to hide your gender identity, because you think people around you are not going to be accepting of it. Uh, colloquially, we call that being in the closet. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to try and protect oneself from, well, first to try and protect one's own self, because, you know, the closet really begins like intrapsychically as an activity that's being done. Uh, there is a term in, in some field, uh, some fields of psychoanalysis called dissociation. It's kind of a, a compartmentalization and trying to not know something you know about yourself at all costs. So that's, that's, that's a very common story people tell retroactively when, when they're in treatment as adolescents or adults about how they had to hide. And then one day they couldn't hide anymore to themselves. And we call that coming out to the self. And that's a moment when you have less dissociation and a little bit of integration of a, a feeling that for the individual would have been unacceptable in the dissociated state. Yeah, and there, there's a lack of a healthy development in terms of uh, emotions and emotional rapport, and uh, especially because you cannot show that uh, openly your your encounters with uh, with a partner, for example, uh, within society, or even like tell your parents. So there's like that element is like I'm always like you always feel like I have to cover up something and not be able to show who I really am. And so basically, you, you you're creating a persona and you creating a, you're wearing a mask and and i wonder like what effects does that have later on uh throughout life because as, as teens we want to show our experiences we want to be with a person we want to show our affection to others and at this point in in many cases it's it's gotten much better thank thank god but uh when we look at it it's still like it's it's pretty tough uh emotionally psychologically mentally for for people who who have a different uh, sexual orientation so I had two reactions as you spoke of. The first thing that I thought of was, you know, we don't know what the exact number of LGBT people are in the United States, but estimates run around two to 4% of the population. We do know that one third of homeless youth are LGBTQ, and that is completely out of proportion, you know, to the number of people in the population. And the reason they're homeless is because they're either thrown out of their homes or they run away from home because they know they won't, they won't be accepted at home. So that's a fact. Yeah. That's a statistical fact. The other thought I had as you were speaking was, you know, I mean, if you, I like the work of Winnicott, Donald Winnicott is a, mm-hmm. you know, someone yeah. whose work I'm a great admirer of. And I love the, the, the notion of true and false selves. Yeah. And, in, and, in, and in many ways, you know, all of us have to develop, regardless of our sexual or gender identity, in Winnicott's theory, all of us develop a full self-presentation as a way to adjust to the expectations first of the caretaker and then of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, full self-presentations are common all the time in everybody. But the, the, the full self-presentation that is required in the closet is a little bit more stressful. You know, one, one example, you know, that sort of, uh, uh, that comes to mind, for example, is you know, a light-skinned black man who can pass as white and who has to pretend he's white, even though his early identity was not white. Mm-hmm. You know, that person is under a lot of stress all the time. That they're, but they're, you know, that's a, how can I say, that's sort of an unconscious uh, cost-risk-benefit uh, analysis being done, you know, because I'll put, I'll take the stress because to not 
act out the thing that I'm acting out will have costs, you know, that I'm not willing to bear. And it, it's kind of interesting because in the in the United States, we say be who you are, and that is really individualism and all that. But then there seems to be like certain limits. Yes, but not like that. So I find that uh, hypocritical, to, to say the least, that uh, there's certain ways of being that are accepted and others are frowned upon, whereas we should be open to to, to all types of, of being and, and lifestyles and so on. So it, isn't there a, a type of conflict within society where uh, certain things, again, are accepted and other things are not? And it goes beyond that also in terms of even in uh, psychoanalysis, which I love, in its history has not been uh, as, uh, as as good as, as I hope to, to see, as, as enlightened as I hope to see. And there's a lot of uh, uh, um, false information there and uh, prejudice and, uh, and, and bias as well throughout. Yes, that's true. Uh, part of my, my published works in the past have had to do with the history of psychoanalysis mm -hmm. and the way psychoanalytic theorizing uh, basically uh, reinforce society's prejudices against gay people, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that psychoanalytic theories of development uh, and psychoanalytic publications reflected the bias that, that already existed in the culture. Um, and uh, the, uh, it, was, it was common knowledge, for example, that the institutes of the American Psychoanalytic Association uh, would not accept openly gay people for training. Uh, until 1991, when they changed their policies under threat of a lawsuit. And they changed their policies about uh, openly gay faculty members in 1992, following that decision. And of course, after they made that change, it took them some time, but they, you know, that, that, that is, um, that those restrictions don't exist anymore, which is not to say that there is still some prejudice against people who are non-gender conforming or gay uh, in psychoanalysts, because psychoanalytic theory of development is very, uh, the only way I can put it is heterosexist and very uh, cisgender oriented. There are no real good psychoanalytic theories to explain, you know, how does someone grow up to be gay or how does, so, how does someone grow up to be transgender? Um, and, uh, and nor do I think psychoanalysts uh, are going to come up with those theories. And, and when they do, I don't think the, the method of psychoanalysis is really one that's going to be able to uh, offer an answer to that. that. Those answers might come from other disciplines, but two people talking in a room are not going to discover why someone is gay or transgender. When we look at, at uh, Freud, uh, who started the ball rolling, and for uh, in many ways, I mean, he's criticized, and, and justly so, for, for some of his uh, approaches and views and so on. But overall, I mean, uh, the 19th century, some of his thoughts about uh, uh, accepting to a certain extent, of course, homosexuality is quite advanced, I think. I think where he um, kind of erred as like the, the practice of uh, psychoanalysis is seeing it like you're the surgeon and you don't have any emotional rapport and so on. And I prefer much more uh, Otto Rank brings in empathy and sympathizing and feeling for, for uh, your, your client. Uh, and uh, that kind of uh, environment, I think, just it's it's much more and uh, the holding environment and, uh, and Winnicott and all that. So I think that's much more important so that you feel safe and you don't you're not dealing like a, with a medical doctor or a surgeon who's just like listening to you and taking notes. It's someone who you feel comfortable with. So I think that shift uh, is, has been very important in, in psychoanalysis. 
I think it's really important to keep in mind that Freud, who was a very original thinker in many ways and uh, and, pe- and had so much uh, of value embedded in everything he had to say that he had, there's so many different schools of psychoanalysis, each of which takes a different idea of Freud's down a different path. Mm-hmm. So I don't, yeah. so that, so that, you know, that he deserves credit for that. Yeah. Uh, he's the, you know, he is the father of psychoanalysis. Um, but Freud himself was not uh, abstaining. You know, the, the, the papers he wrote, technical papers on advising psychoanalysts to conduct themselves like a surgeon, was not, when you read his case history, how he acted. There's the very famous case, yes. The Rat Man, uh, in which, he, you know, he offers his patient who hasn't been eating food, you know, something to eat. And so, uh, so you know, Freud himself was not abstinent in his, in his work, although he advised the people who came after him to do that. Um, and sir, and he was a progressive for his time, which is to say that he uh, there was a petition to decriminalize male homosexuality in Austrian Hungary, uh, which he signed. You know, he was one of the signatories of that petition because he didn't think that people should be um, uh, crim- you know, that behavior should be criminalized for a psychic state that was not their fault. You know, the laws again, what are called sodomy laws, the laws criminalizing homosexuality, are based on moral grounds. That is, that this is you know a moral crime. This is a crime against the rest of uh, civilization, and therefore it should be criminalized. Uh, Freud did not believe that at all. But you know, but uh, but Freud, you know, did not. Freud can, cannot be taken out of his historical context. We shouldn't think about Freud. What would Freud today think about gay rights movements? Uh, I have no idea because, you know, what he wrote in that time wasn't would not exactly be supportive necessarily of of gay rights movement. There's a very uh, interesting book by Joseph Wartis. Uh, called Fragment of an Analysis with Freud. He did not, he went to Vienna. He was an American psychiatrist who went to Vienna. He did not uh, uh, become a psychoanalyst himself, but he was interested in learning about it. And every night he would go up and take notes about of his sessions and he published them in the 1950s as a book. And there's a very amusing section where he says to uh, Freud, he asks Freud, well, if everybody is intrinsically bisexual, which Freud did believe everybody had bisexual instincts, why shouldn't everybody, why can't everybody express their homosexuality in public as well, too? And Freud responds, at least in Wardis's recording of Freud's response in a very annoyed way in which he says, everybody has bisexual instincts and the homosexual instinct is very important, but it should be sublimated because the homosexual instinct is the basis of social connections between people of the same sex. You know, the, he says to Fortis, you know, your idea is like you're like a young child who learns that everybody defecates. And so everybody should defecate in public. This cannot be. So this was yeah. this was, this doesn't put Freud on the side of the modern gay rights movement. Yeah. You know? yeah. But 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 I'm not a big fan of trying to hide behind what Freud thought as a way to justify how we think today. Mm-hmm. But, but his his influence we we still feel and even the talk about unconscious bias is is this these are his terms and the, the subconscious and all of that so it, it's hugely important but I think a lot of people also use these terms without fully understanding what they mean and it's just like taken into as as jargon into into today's language but I don't think they're really aware a lot of people are not aware of, of what that really means implications with that uh, with those kind of terms and uh, one thing I also want to talk in, 
the the aim of psychoanalysis is is really to make the unconscious conscious so when you have like situations that don't ask don't tell and again going back to hiding or that is not helpful in any way as seeing from a, a psychoanalytic analytic point of view and um uh, in, in in your case too i think your experience with uh with your parents your your, your mother specifically of you know not accepting not uh, accepting you with your uh, uh, with your sexuality, right? So that's something that you would pretend that it's uh, it's it's not happening. And the the issue of gay marriage then really helped to, in a way, um, normalize it so that others would 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 accept it too. Uh, and uh, I I watched a video about how you talked about uh, your experience with uh, uh, growing up and uh, and uh, and dealing with these conflicting emotions and. And sad that uh, I find as a parent too that uh, there are many parents who do not uh, accept their, their children, and so uh, in that sense, a lot of them are are driven off and driven away from the the family, which should be that supportive and, and holding environment, but it fails to do so in many ways. Yes, uh, uh, I mean parents should love their children. That's what we think today. But we've learned, unfortunately, not all parents love their children. Some parents treat their children as disposable. Yes. Um, but for parents, you know, for parents who love their children and if a child comes out to them as gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever, it's really a challenge to the parent's connection to the child because it, it would be the unusual parent who, when their child is born, thinks, oh, I can't wait till they grow up to be gay or lesbian or transgender. You know, the parent, the parent, you know, usually imagines the child might in some way replicate, you know, something of their life or, or better in their terms. Uh, for many parents, when the child comes out, uh, the parents may not know enough about the subject so that they worry that their child is going to suffer uh consequences uh what you know uh the problem is, is you know if you if you're born into another kind of minority group so you're you're born in, you're born black your black parents will teach you how to deal with white people's prejudices mm -hmm. you know i was born i was born into a, a jewish home uh somewhat observant not super orthodox but observant and so my parents taught me from a young age how to deal with anti-semitism but when you're born gay, lesbian, or transgender, you're born into the enemy camp. That is, your parents have all the prejudices of the wider world, and they may not necessarily uh, know how to help teach you how to manage those prejudices. And, and so I, when I, you know, I consult with a lot of parents uh, whose uh, transgender child has come out, whether adolescent, adult, or, or even younger sometimes, you know, and their main concern is the safety of their child. And because they don't know how to negotiate that in the wider world, and they don't know how to teach that to their children, so that many parents who love their children, who don't want to reject them, really, that's what they worry about, that somebody else is going to hurt their child. And it goes back to the definition of normal, too. For me, I've, I've always like, what is deemed normal is the norm. The majority does something and it's seen as normal. So if if everybody would uh, wear hats, then that would be seen as normal and everybody would follow that. So in many ways, the definition of normal is what majority of, of people tend to do. And so uh, that kind of, of seeing something that is different as immediately like abnormal, not us, I think that's that causes a lot of conflict within within society. 
and then to try to bring you back to what is the norm, even though that goes against uh, who you are and uh, what you stand for. And uh, the a case in point would be conversion therapy. That 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 horrible notion is we can fix you, we can cure you, and we can make you a quote-unquote normal again, just like the rest. And uh, we know that uh, it not only does it not work, but it caused a lot of uh, harm and damage uh, psychologically, mentally, emotionally to, to, to the patients. Yes, I, uh, I, um, I began writing about conversion therapies in the 1990s when the general wisdom at the time was there was no harm in trying. That was pretty much what people thought. Uh, but I was seeing people in my practice, uh, gay men who were had been in previous treatments, conversion therapy treatments, from a variety of perspectives, some psychoanalytic, some religious. Uh, and, uh, and I saw people were harmed by efforts to fit in to the expectations, their own expectations too, but their own expectations as influenced by where they grew up and where they came from. And that was really hard, you know, and they tried very hard and they were very motivated. People tried it for years. And one of the pitfalls of these conversion therapies is often the therapist would tell the patient that it was uh, their motivation, which would be the major factor in change. And, and of course, when the treatment failed, as it usually did, the patient blamed themselves, not the therapist or the treatment because it was, I must not have been motivated enough or in religious treatments, my, my faith must not have been strong enough. And so people would feel worse than when they started. Uh, some of the patients I saw reported feeling depressed and anxious and suicidal. Mm -hmm. And in addition, many of these patients during the course of these so-called treatments were encouraged by their uh, therapists to marry into heterosexual marriages. I'm talking about people you know I saw in the 90s and 80s, uh, and they were motivated to get married uh, and have children, which they could do because even gay people can have sex, heterosexual sex, if they try hard enough. Um, and so they would have children, and then the marriages would fall apart when it was clear that the person's sexual orientation was not going to change from the, from the uh, so-called treatment. And what do religious families do when they, you know, divorce? You know, a lot of religions frown upon divorce. So, so these are therapists who who meddled and made more trouble for people than they help. Yeah, and I, I watched a documentary on that. I was surprised to find out that a lot of uh, quote unquote ex gay people were were pushing that. So it seems like they're 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 like offloading a lot of their own frustrations and trying to say, okay, now you go through these experiences. And I was I was surprised to 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 see that uh, uh, there, as well as just in general religion. And uh, we talk about Christianity because that's our experience. But there are various other religions, Islam, which does not uh, accept uh, homosexuality. It criminalizes it in many ways. And so, uh, which if I look back to the, again, we talked about Freud, uh, another person I admire is, is Jesus. And I think if I look back to him, his openness towards the children, prostitutes, lepers, and so on, he's I think, and again, I'm assuming, but I think he would be more open to uh, to to uh, uh, people who are different, and uh, because he did embrace them throughout his life and his his, his teachings. But um, we've shifted in different ways, and uh, I I find that very uh, uh, concerning, actually, and uh, uh, surprising that a lot of the actual things that uh, Jesus would say, the church does not follow or practice. 
Well, when we talk about Jesus, we've moved outside my area of expertise, <laughs> I have to say. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but I think it's it's that kind of like uh, uh, certain views that are again limited that we say this is how uh, life should be lived and again this is what you should be doing and these are the rules and dogma and I think that as individuals we want to uh, not just embrace dogma and take that follow up on it blindly but really evaluate uh, for ourselves and for me personally I think human rights should be more important than any dogma or religious creed well I'll I'll, 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 I'll... A clinical example uh, mm -hmm. is something I've seen with people who come from conservative religious backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you have to do as the analyst working with such patients is you have to immerse yourself in the dogma that they've mm -hmm. been raised with, that it's really important that you understand you know, what they were raised to believe and why they were raised to believe that and, and its importance and significance to them. Uh, and then the other thing that you do is you begin to try and introduce the idea that there is dissent within religious belief systems, that just because one religious group believes X doesn't mean someone who claims equal authority believes the same thing. We have many forms of Christianity, for example, and the reason we have that is that you know people have split not necessarily over the homosexuality issue historically, but certainly they've split uh, over other, you know, uh, uh, religious questions that have led to complete ruptures in major churches. So, so we as analysts, we like to help patients do that themselves. We would, we would like your thinking not to be dogmatic. We would like your thinking to be open to other ways of thinking, to expand your way of thinking about yourself and others, which doesn't get rid of the way you think when you first came in. You know, you will, you will leave your analysis. If you have good analysis, you'll leave it with all the beliefs that you came in with, but they will occupy a smaller percentage of your entire whole when you leave. And what you do with that, that's up to you. Yeah, and I think when, when we see too, uh, like in terms of uh, when we talk about toxic masculinity and uh, there are many people who are the staunch like uh, opponents to uh, homosexuality. And often it turns out that they themselves are not accepting themselves and they are gay themselves. So, and we've seen that many times throughout many cases of that. And I was wondering to, to what extent is, especially that, that the toxic feeling that uh, it, when it goes to extremes, that that might be a way of trying to uh, reassure everyone and let, know, let everybody know that you are in fact uh, uh, heterosexual when uh, when you're not and and uh, uh, the movie The Power of the Dog reminded me of that because the, the main character was so cruel and vicious uh, because he had those budding feelings that he didn't accept uh, within him and so and then he was uh, basically and this is a spoiler but he was killed by uh, a person who is homosexual so uh, I found that that kind of power conflict very interesting of looking at the causes not of of, of homosexuality, but certain behaviors, uh, why people behave in such extreme ways? Great question. Uh, I'm thinking of many famous people, uh, a, Sen a US senator yes. who was caught in an, an airport bathroom, tapping mm -hmm. his foot to the person in the next stall to try, I guess, and, and make a connection, or a very famous uh, evangelical minister you know, who, who's, who's seeing male prostitutes 
yet, but in his day-to-day -day life was condemning homosexuality as was the senator, you know, on the Senate floor. So that, you know, so these are, I, again, we get back to Winnicott full self-presentations, mm -hmm. severe forms of dissociation. Uh, these are, these are very, you know, I, I think these are very severe forms of dissociation, although I haven't, you know, we, we have an ethical guideline in the American Psychiatric Association not to analyze someone you haven't actually personally examined. But if I were to speculate about why someone might behave that way, I would say that they are trying to reinforce their own self-image as non-homosexual, projecting out bad aspects of homosexuality into others, uh, and, uh, and 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 if they are doing that at this, and if they are doing that psychologically, but they're still behaving in ways that get them into trouble. And their dissociative defenses are not working as well as they would like them to work. Reaction formation and, and all that too. Uh, as, uh, I'm wondering also the state of the world right now. So there, there is uh, some very good things that are happening, and a lot of it also through your work. Uh, you uh, just uh, um, um, taking away the disorder and change it to dysphoria for 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 gender, and that's uh, again uh, uh, a huge uh, huge advancement here. Um, but um, what are you thinking of the state of the world as? Because it seems right now that it's very divisive. It's very polarized it's 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 something that's really coming out so from again point of view of psychoanalysis i find it fascinating but also scary that a lot of the unconscious like drives and emotion and so on so the id basically freud's id is coming out in society and we're seeing like uh, behaviors and actions and words and misinformation and disinformation and conflicts and so on that uh, before used to be probably concealed and hidden and is coming free into the open and it's uh, it's very scary. It is scary. We live in very anxious times. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a war going on in the Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, which has in the background the possibility of nuclear mm -hmm. attacks, since one of the combatants has nuclear weapons and the other one is backed by countries that have nuclear weapons. And we don't know if that'll happen. Uh, I think there is a lot of anxiety. I think when we get anxious, uh, we try to find the source of our anxiety. Sometimes, you know, seeking a source of anxiety over things we have no control over. We might identify somebody or some group, you know, as being the source of anxiety. So I think, uh, you know, for for people on uh, on the political right in the United States, you know, immigrants are a source of anxiety. LGBT people uh, are are seen as a source of anxiety and you know, the wish to get rid of them, you know, to put, get rid of them. On the left, of course, we see anxiety in, uh, in, in, gun, in gun shootings, you know, massive shootings and out-of-control gun laws and the kind of, uh, and also the attacks on LGBT rights that, you know, people see everybody as an enemy. Some people see religion as an enemy. You know, the, the big problem, I think, today is an absence of dialogue between, uh, between, between uh, competing views that may seem irreconcilable. And for some people, and we'll see tonight is the, the State of the Union address, you know, and, the, and there will be people uh, perhaps who are Republicans because we have a Democratic president who will, you know, behave badly as they have done in the past. Uh, and they will do so because they, the idea that we would talk to each other in, in government is not, is not why they were sent to Washington. They were, many of them were sent to Washington to take the thing down. You know, so you can't take the thing down if you're talking to each other. If you talk to each other, then you're automatically 
uh, inducted into the swamp, so to speak. So that's a problem because it means that we really, you know, we're a country of almost 300 million people. You, you, we have to talk to each other. There's no way we can't talk to each other. And we're not doing that very well right now. Yeah. And I want to build on that before I just uh, remember the dream and psychoanalysis will talk about dreams. I was in the, in the Congress, U.S. Congress in my dream. And I saw how they operated and they, they were shouting at each other and so on. And I, I remember thinking, we elected these people to run the country. And so uh, I, I found that very like, it was like shocked. I was like, these are immature people and they are running the country. So I, 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 again, that was quite interesting. But um, I, it, it makes me think of George W. Bush when he said, you're either with us or you're against us. So I think it's really like seen like that. You're either on this side or on that side. And there is no gray area. There's no compromise. There is no uh, dialogue, as you mentioned. And in, in many cases, uh, not yeah. enough freedom of speech of really like sitting down, talking about things, being open and sharing things and disagreeing with each other. But I find it's like really like it's one or the other. And we're neglecting uh, like looking at, at the, the middle ground as well. Yeah, I you know there are some people for whom compromise is selling out or even treason yeah. uh, that you shouldn't compromise or something and maybe that and maybe there are issues where there should be no compromise but unfortunately not everybody agrees on what those issues are and so the result is you know we have polarization and, and, and very ra very radically different views of you know what it means to be an American, for example. But I don't think that's happening only in the United States. I, I know it's happening uh, in other countries as well. Um, uh, there, there is, and I think that has to do with a, I would say, I don't know the answer to this. This is just me speculating, and of course, but I think that we live in a, one of the problems with the internet is brought more information into everybody's homes than they can actually manage. You know, to to integrate into themselves and the difficulty integrating in the flow of information can only make people anxious because there is false information out there. So, how do you learn to separate, you know, you know, facts from false information? It's it's hard to do, and and nobody can do that 100% because you know we will always hear the information that agrees with our pre-existing beliefs as true until proven otherwise. So. That's, that's a problem. It's the element of self-censorship too. That a lot of people are not, they're scared of doing something or saying something. And and that, I, that's not helping creativity. That's not helping like uh, advancing uh, in society, coming up with good ideas because you're always kind of double checking yourself and second guessing yourself. And I, I don't think that's a, that's in a healthy environment. So that's why like when, when you would be in treatment, it's like analytic treatment, you, you feel like, you know, you can express all parts and any parts without being judged. But when you go outside in society, it's like everything goes under scrutiny. Like a, a tweet you sent maybe 10 years ago as a joke is seen as something serious. And now you're suddenly a, a homophobe or a transphobe and so on, or racist. And so I, I find that uh, in, in many ways also uh, immature. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to situate it developmentally, whether it's yeah. mature or immature, yeah. but it is happening and it is something that uh, I'm not sure how that will unfold. I mean, there are there are uh, many examples uh, of people being canceled, both on the left and on the right, because of something they said that people, you know, don't like and don't want to hear. Uh, ideally, as you point out, you know, when you're in a psychoanalytic setting, there should be no limit 
to what we should be able to hear, although I don't think that really happens all the time. That's I think. True. Yes, of I think that people don't tell everything, and I think analysts can't hear everything. Analysts have counter-transference, and they can't always hear everything mm -hmm. their patients want to tell. So that, that happens, too. But yes, uh, I'm a big believer in free speech, mm -hmm. but I also believe speech should be respectful so yes. that, you know, that, yes. so that it, you can say what you want to say. But even speech has this limit. You're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded movie theater. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, there is no absolute right to any right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for, for an awesome discussion, uh, uh, Dr. Jack Drescher. Uh, you uh, are the Sigourney Award recipient, uh, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association as well, and, and many, many other things. Thank you so much for being here on Arash's World and sharing your, your wonderful insights. Thank you for your, your work. Congrats again for, for this award and many others that you've won throughout the years. And uh, just just thank you for everything you're doing. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you.